Now you can find, listen and subscribe to Chilling with Jens and the local Danfoss Climate Solution podcast in your RevTools app. Download it from danfoss.com. Service and support. Downloads. Hi, I'm Jens Andersen from Danfoss Climate Solution. Thank you for listening in on this number four podcast in the series that we call Tour de Cooling, where we intend to talk about all parts of our typical commercial refrigeration applications, you know, cold rooms, walk-ins, etc. We have reached the liquid line now, and as usual, we have a great conversation between our application experts, Jörg Saar and John Broughton, about their practical experiences and advices on the subject. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please mail to chillingwithjens, in one word, at danfoss.com. Coming out of uh, liquid, coming out liquidated of the condenser, the refrigerant now flowing towards, or back to, you could say, the evaporator to circle back to the first phase change again. Along the piping, There usually are a few things to have a look at where the piping itself probably is the most important thing. How do you see that, John and York? John, you want to start? Yeah, I'll go. Um, Thanks, Jens. So, yes, the liquid line, and it is by its nature what we call it, the liquid line. So we need to ensure that coming out of the condenser um, into our receiver and then out of our receiver towards our expansion valve that we need a... Uh, what I call a full column of liquid, so a uh, <clears throat> that line needs to be liquid and not uh, not a liquid vapor mix. Otherwise, we will get poor capacity out of our expansion device. Yeah, and you you mentioned that there is liquid in that line, and I mean, of course, the idea of the liquid line is to transport the liquid from the condenser to the expansion valve. And when you transport something, you have a velocity there and you might have some obstacles, which is bends and the diameter of the line and so on. So you need to to make sure that you do not lose too much of your energy and subcooling you get out of of the condenser condenser whilst you transport that liquid. So the the pipe size is important and and how you put the line. Yeah. So in 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 fact, it is how you actually lay out your pipe work that is, um, say, well, I guess also critical. You could say not just interesting, but critical for for some of the functions, not the least royal return, for instance. Or how do you see that? It it is yes. Um, if if we talk about smaller systems, well, then the smaller the system is, the less critical everything gets. Because even if you if you have a line that is too thin and your pressure drop because of that thin line reaches a certain level, well, if that line is only 70 centimeters long, then then there is a limit, right, regarding your, your pressure drop. But if your line is all of a sudden 5 meters, 10 meters long, well, that has a stronger influence than when it's too thin. That's one point. And the other one is make it long and now go even up or down with the line. So you have a condensing unit outdoors, but your evaporators is on the second floor and you need to bring your refrigerant upwards. Well, that has a strong influence because all of a sudden you have a pressure change because of the height there and you might lose 
all your subcooling and you generate bubbles just because you push it upwards. Yeah. John, any comments? Um, yeah, generally we need to, as Jog said, we need to maintain our velocity in our liquid line. That is the, the key. And we talk about one meter, one meter per second approximately. So we need to ensure that the, the line size of the liquid line is correct. And uh, again, as following on from what Jörg said, if it's a small system, yeah, maybe not so many issues. The larger system and the longer your pipe length, that becomes more important. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if, if, if we have height differences, uh, any particular things that we should consider? Well, yeah, the, the height difference generates a pressure loss, if you want to put it like that. So if you pump up or if you push up the liquid 10 meters in height, then at these 10 meters in height, you lose one bar. So let's assume you have your condensing unit at, at the basement and you come out of your condenser with 20 bar. Now you push the liquid up 10 meters in height and 10 meters above your condensing unit, you don't have the 20 bar anymore. You only have 19, which sounds okay, right? But you lose that one bar and that means you lose all that in subcooling. And if you are if you're unlucky, you lose that much of subcooling that you generate bubbles, flash gas ahead of the expansion valve. And now you have a challenge with your expansion valve. So that's what you need to have in mind. And if you need to go up pretty high, you, you need to make sure that your subcooling is good enough or limit your height. Yeah. Which means that you may have to place your condensing units somewhere higher than just in the basement, I guess. Uh, yes, for example, yeah, that you do that or that you put your condensing unit maybe on the roof and now you need to go down with the liquid line one or two floors, which is okay. That's that's no no issue for the liquid going downwards. Yeah, I see. We, we also have, of course, uh, other components in the liquid line, like filter dryers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, anything that we should sort of uh, pay attention to in that con uh, context. I mean, a filter dryer can clog up with dirt, uh, moisture, whatever. How do we, how do we deal with that? Uh, are there any symptoms that we should maybe go for a, a new filter dryer? The the, the classic symbol, uh, sorry, symbol symptom is uh, is frost uh, or uh, moisture on the uh, on the on the filter dryer. If it is, uh, let's say, uh, you know, blocked with moisture or even uh, debris on the uh, on on the felt pads, so you will notice a temperature change across the filter dryer if it is blocked. Um, main thing to say is that obviously that filter dryer needs to be sized correctly for the duty of the system. So, um, yeah, you can't put a very small filter dryer in a large system because it's not matched to the duty of the system and the amount of moisture that, that it's trying to remove from the system. But and are there anything anything else that you should consider when when 
choosing a, a new replacement for a an older filter dryer? Well, if if you replace a filter dryer, it makes a lot of sense to replace it with the same size filter dryer. Sure. If if you just say, okay, I change or I have opened the system, so I changed refrigerant or whatever, you should always put a new filter dryer in. Whenever you open the system, you should place a new filter dryer into the system. And then you should replace it with the size and that is installed. Um, I would like to come back to your question asking, well, how do I know whether a filter dryer is blocked? Well, there is a pretty simple thing. You just put your hands ahead or at the filter dryer inlet and at the filter dryer outlet at the liquid line there. And then you you might feel a temperature difference. And if you really feel quite an, a solid temperature difference, then you can strongly assume that your filter dryer is blocked because now it acts like an expansion valve because there is a big pressure drop there and you might have an expansion in the filter dryer and then the liquid line after the filter dryer gets cold, a good deal colder than ahead of the filter dryer. Those might be only a few Kelvin, but let's assume that's 10 Kelvin. You feel that difference and then you know your pressure drop is too high and that's that's because your filter dryer is blocked and then you yeah. you just replace your filter dryer. Uh, and I think I heard somebody say something about uh, having acid uh, removal or acid containing abilities of, of that filter, the new replacement filter. Yep, that is uh, that is probably one of the biggest discussions, Jens, to be honest, about whether you put a 100% molecular sieve dryer in or whether you put a, uh, an, a dryer that removes acid and also moisture. And what I've always been taught is that if you are assembling a plant for the first time, then you would put a 100% molecular sieve dryer in because we want to remove the, the moisture uh, and moisture is a catalyst to generate weak acids in the system. Um, then if you're putting, let's say you're exchanging the filter dryer during a service, then you would put a filter dryer that removes moisture and acid as the, the service dryer, let's say. Yeah. Jorg, any, any thoughts on that one? No, same same thing. Yeah, um, with with the current refrigerants, you don't have chlorine anymore, so that's it's a good idea to have 100% molecular sieve to be able to reduce the content of humidity in the refrigeration system pretty fast. If you have, of course, a burnout, if you have a real compressor burnout, then we talk about something else. Then you have you have burnout dryers and they have the capability to absorb a lot of moisture. You put them in, you take the, not moisture, acid, sorry. The burnout dryers are, are made to absorb a lot of acid, specifically made for that. And you don't leave them in the system for long. You just leave them in for some time, take them out, maybe put the second one in to get as much acid as possible out of the system because a compressor burnout, when you burn the, the winding of a compressor, that generates quite some acid. And you need to get that out of the system somehow. But if you don't yeah. have that, if you have normal operation, then 100% molecular sieve as a, as a starting point is, is a good option. 
Now, if you sort of follow the flow, uh, next would be, I guess, in some uh, systems at least, uh, would be sight glasses and things like that. Um, yeah. Any comments on that? Well, the sight glass is, of course, an option that you can have an idea of what's going on in the system. Mm. First of all, is you see whether you have bubbles or not. That can give you an indication whether your filter dryer is blocked if you don't put your hands on, on the line. Or in addition to that, if you see the bubbles, well, they are generated somewhere. And then you usually have a moisture indicator there, which tells you whether your filter dryer is still capable of absorbing humidity or whether that is maybe saturated already, that filter dryer and you still have humidity in the system, which can no longer be absorbed. Both both things, so bubbles as well as uh, a high humidity in the system is an indicator to to change a filter dryer. Okay, so let's, let's follow the flow further. Uh, in some systems, you might actually head into a solenoid valve um any comments on that um i guess jens to say that the solenoid valve we would put a solenoid valve in a system if we were using a pump down control method so that when we reach the required temperature in the application display case cold room whatever um then we would close the solenoid valve um and then the system would pump down and cut out on lp that's why we we fit the solenoid valve um, yeah, in the system as a control method. Um, main thing to say, obviously, the solenoid valve should be correctly sized for the duty of the system. Um, a lot of the, the the valves we know are are line sized, um, but yeah, it should be it should be sized correctly for the duty of the system, so that we ensure that it operates correctly, and you don't have any issues with the valve um, uh, fluttering, let's say, uh, if it's incorrectly sized. Mm. Yeah, um, just a silly question. If I have a, an electronic expansion device afterwards, do I need a solenoid valve? It, it purely depends, Jens, what the electronic expansion valve is. If it would be a stepper valve, for example, then you would need a solenoid valve. Um, if it was a AKV, a pulse type valve, then you wouldn't. The AKV is, uh, yeah, let's say gas type, um, <clears throat> but the, the stepper valve is not. Okay. And, and there is one more thing an AKV type or a solenoid valve in case you have a pressure, not a pressure, a power loss, then every solenoid valve drops close. It just closes the line because it, it just drops close. On a stepper motor valve, when you lose the power, it stays at the position where it is. So either you put a solenoid valve there, which then closes the line kind of automatically when you have a power loss, or you need to make sure that you have uh, any kind of battery buffer, which allows the stepper motor valve to still close. So you have enough power in that battery that the stepper motor valve can close. That's 
that's another option. So you can decide what makes more sense for you, the battery pack or or adding simply a solenoid valve. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and I guess if we sort of follow the traditional uh, uh, diagram of 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 a, a kind of a com small commercial system. Uh, I guess the next one would be the expansion device. And I guess um, we will take the expansion device on its own in a, uh, in a separate uh, episode in, uh, in our series, because it's going to be uh, quite a discussion uh, about that. Oh, well, discussion, yeah, there's a lot of talk or we, we will be able to talk a lot about expansion uh, valves we have already done so actually um in in uh, previous episodes so but uh, we'll get to it uh, again at a, at a later stage um so if we sort of zoom out and look at the system uh still sort of concentrating on on the liquid line and and whatever has to do with the liquid line are there anything else that we uh, haven't mentioned that uh, could be interesting to mention i mean things like insulation for ex for instance uh, do we insulate uh, liquid lines before we come to that um, you mentioned expansion valve i would like to mention one thing which fits to your question is there something yes we will talk about the, the expansion valve separately um, of course there is a line between the solenoid valve and the expansion valve and what's important is to make that line short as short as you can that's a really important thing and the reason why um, is just imagine you are the refrigerant and then um, a solenoid valve opens and you get the okay to run as fast as you can towards the expansion valve. Now the expansion valve is kind of a wall, whether that's open or not, the, the hole is so small, it's kind of a wall. So imagine yourself standing in front of a wall. 20 centimeters in front of a wall. Now somebody says, run. That somebody is the, is the solenoid valve. You open the solenoid valve, you start to run as fast as you can for 20 centimeters. You hit the wall, it's okay, right? After 20 centimeters. Now go two and a half meters away and run as fast as you can right into the wall. See the difference? That's why you want to make that difference as short as possible. <laughs> Um, that thing is called liquid hammer. What's what's going on then? But um, the the idea is really the same. It's like running into a wall, and if you do that on a very short distance, you don't have an issue. That's Good a point. fantastic, fantastic explanation. <laughs> I'll I'll have to remember that one. Yeah. That that's a very good point, Jörg. Um, liquid hammer, because we see that every now and again on site. Um, and if you subcool your liquid. Um, that then makes that even worse because the liquid is oh, yeah. even more dense. Um, and as you say, make that distance between solenoid valve and expansion valve as short as possible. Um, and if you have something like a very undersized expansion valve um, or an oversized expansion valve, you can make things um, worse also. And 
as Jörg said, the orifice within the expansion valve is very small. If it is a electronic expansion valve, you can have even more issues, um, depending where that valve is within its uh, operating cycle, let's say. Um, so you have to be aware of that. Um, what one thing, Jens, that jumps out at me that we've not really spoken about is the receiver and the size of the receiver mm, compared yeah. to the the system itself. Um, and basically, the receiver obviously is a, a vessel that we uh, <coughs> that backs up liquid so that we can cope with any rise and fall in. Uh, yeah, duty or demand within our refrigeration system. But that receiver also must be sized appropriately to store the full charge of refrigerant in that system plus 20%. So we need to ensure that we have, when the system is fully pumped down, that we have 80% of that receiver volume of the uh, refrigerant charge within the system and a spare 20% volume to allow for expansion due to ambient temperature rises. Right, yeah. That is actually not uh, something we should jump over easily. But thank you. Uh, yeah, I don't know. John, Jörg? Uh, yeah, insulation. You, you, asked, yeah. you asked about insulation. Oh, yeah. Um, typically, a liquid line is not insulated in many systems. I don't say it's always the case, but in many systems you do not insulate a liquid line because your refrigerant, your liquid is warmer than your ambient air. And then that helps to generate subcooling in the liquid line because you, you just get rid of a bit of heat, it subcools the liquid, so that's useful. That, that helps you. And that's why you usually do not insulate that and you do not need to insulate that. If we talk about CO2, then the line is colder than ambient. Here um, you can you have an insulation. Sometimes if you have a really big subcooling, and here we come back to the height discussion we had, right? So if you have a specific subcooler installed, and you, you subcool your liquid so much that it might be below ambient temperature, then it can make sense to, to insulate the liquid line. If you don't have that in standard systems, you usually do not insulate the liquid line. Great, okay, thanks. Just a question, um, Jörg, for the listeners then. If we talk about subcooling, and we're going back a little bit, I guess, just to the outlet of the condenser, but if we talk about a normal system, let's say a condensed unit on a cold room, for example, um, what level of subcooling would you expect out of the condenser into our liquid line, into our receiver, and onto our expansion valve? Well, typically, if you have an OK-sized condenser, then you talk about a few Kelvin, maybe two, if you are really lucky, up to four Kelvin, but that's it. Usually usually less than four, around two or something like that. You don't get a lot out of a standard condenser. Mm -hmm. Agree. Um, and then again, talking about subcooling, because it's featured quite heavily in, in this discussion. What's the benefit of subcooling our liquid? Well, to me, there are two benefits. One is 
if you have some subcooling available, you cover your pressure losses because you pump the refrigerant. There is a refrigerant flow through the liquid line and you are going to have certain pressure losses. Small, but they are there. Just the friction in the pipe, the pressure loss in the filter dryer, um, which is small when it's not blocked. Maybe in the solenoid valve, there's a small pressure loss and you cover that so you do not get flash gas ahead of the expansion valve. That's that's the, the, the one big um, advantage. And the other one is is to me connected um, to that, so you can you can even have the a bit of a height you can generate. So you, if your evaporator is two meters above your condensing unit, well then you have a 0.2 bar pressure loss because of the height, and you might be able to cover that that small height with the normal standard subcooling. If it gets more, you need to generate more subcooling using a specific subcooler. That, that's a, what it is to me. Have you something else in mind? I would say exactly the same, Jörg, to be honest. Um, I've come across sites where they've heavily subcooled the liquid. Um, and then when we get to the expansion valve, which we'll talk about next time, the expansion valve is way oversized um, for the capacity of the plant. So if we talk about subcooling, we need to ensure the, uh, let's say, total system design and not forget about individual components within the system. You're right and good that you mentioned that if if you talk about energy efficiency and you squeeze you want to squeeze out some more efficiency out of your system it might make sense on on certain refrigerant to add an extra subcooler which helps you to subcool the liquid and then you can get maybe a bit more efficiency out of the system. But as you say, um, we need to pay attention that we don't make that too much. If you subcool 30 Kelvin, 40 Kelvin, um, that's so much, then then your expansion valve might not be able to, to handle that. You, it, that's all gonna, gonna be a bit of a challenge. You can do that if you really design the system specifically to that, but then that only makes sense in, in certain applications and specific systems, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agree, agree. Well, uh, may, maybe coming back to that liquid hammer, um, just just one one more word. If you come to a system that has a fractured filter dryer, so where the filter dryer kind of pops open like like it explodes, this might be because you have that liquid hammer thing, right? Because your distance between solenoid valve and expansion valve is too long because the refrigerant runs into that wall. Now, if you run into a wall, you just smash into the wall, you sit at the wall and, and say, ah, oh, that hurts, right? But for the refrigerant, there is a pressure peak generated which runs backwards through the liquid line. And then it goes backwards through the line and it, it hits all the components and it hits the filter dryer as well. That pressure peak that runs backwards, a high pressure peak, and that might crack your filter dryer. So if you see that, look at the distance between solenoid valve and expansion valve before you simply replace the dryer and the next 
the next uh, solenoid valve opening cracks the filter dryer again. Would yeah. it then would it then benefit you to have a small distance between solenoid valve and expansion valve, but also a small distance between solenoid valve and dryer? Uh, that's that's not so much of a difference because usually you have when the when the valve the solenoid valve is closed you you just have the liquid sitting there so that that's that's not so much of of a deal there it's really the distance between solenoid <laughs> and expansion valve that you need to keep as as small as possible and just to mention that when you make that distance longer we don't talk about pressure peaks of one or two bar only we talk about pressure peaks of tens of bars so you can easily have a pressure peak of 40 50 60 bar when you make that distance a bit too long mm. which yeah. which comes in addition to the existing condensing pressure right so that's quite a lot mm. yeah i've seen that on uh, yeah water chillers in the past yeah um what one point jens i guess we've spoken about the cyclus and we said it's a window uh, I think we said it's a window into the system. If you have an extremely long liquid line, um, at least this is what I was taught, is it's very good practice to put a sight glass in front of the expansion valve so mm -hmm. that you can immediately see the quality and quantity of the liquid that you have hitting that expansion valve. Um, you know, if you've got a three meter liquid line, then not so many problems, but if you're, you know, 20, 30, 40 meters of liquid line, then um, it's a good idea to put that sight glass at the furthest expansion valve away from the compressor, rack pack, et cetera, so that you can uh, you can guarantee that you can see what quality and quantity of liquid you have there. Yeah, you're right yeah. about that. And and thanks for mentioning long liquid lines. I mean, nowadays with refrigerant prices and and all the environmental discussion that we need to reduce the amount of refrigerant really think about your liquid line length that's where your where your charge is sitting mainly it's liquid right high density every meter of liquid line contains quite some refrigerant so the shorter you can make that the lower your system charge yeah, and I guess you you shouldn't compromise the 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 dimension of the liquid line in that respect. I mean, in in because you still need to to maintain speeds and uh, yes. yeah velocities, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Don't don't make it especially if you have a long liquid line and you make that too small, you get a very high pressure drop there. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And, and speaking of, of velocities, are there any particular things that we should uh, consider when talking about uh, oil return? Well, on the on the liquid line, you don't have too much of a problem typically, because the liquid can transport the oil usually in a pretty good way, standard refrigerants, right? Um, that's not too much of a of a deal, no matter whether it's going up or or down. Uh, that's that's no no big issue there. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I guess we'll we'll talk a bit more about that when we 
come uh, full circle on our suction line back to uh, back to the compressor. There's one thing, and maybe John, you can talk a bit about that from your experience. Receivers. You mentioned we pay. We need to pay attention to a receiver. So if you if we have a larger receiver, that's when we might get some um, some oil separation. Usually with standard refrigerants, not a big problem either. But yeah, um, just just is there something that you have seen on a on a liquid receiver? Um. I've seen situations where we've got uh, the liquid receiver is too small. Um, I've seen situations where the uh, receiver is is too big. Um, you know, so long as you have sufficient charge in your system um, to cope when you cover the dip tube, then the system works okay. But obviously, if you then pump the system down and it's too small, you can have issues. Um, if the receiver is too big, um, yeah, I've not seen any issues um, caused by that. Just a very large refrigerant charge versus the actual capacity of the refrigeration system. Um, I've seen sites where people have not checked the inlet and outlet valves to make sure that they're fully open on the receiver, um, giving us some uh, yeah quite high pressure drops oh, yeah, through the rotor locks, <laughs> things like that. Um, yeah, but I'm trying. Have to you ever seen any any oil uh, that's that's sitting in a liquid line receiver on a suction line? Uh, that's a different yeah. topic, right? But liquid line receiver, not, not to my knowledge, I haven't seen no. that. No, no, the same. Not talking about ammonia here. That's yeah, a different yeah, yeah, topic, of but... course. Yeah, yeah, different topic. Yeah, but no, yeah. not not on. Let's say traditional refrigerants. Um, uh, you know that we currently use in the commercial world. Let, let let's say that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously, there's there's challenges with um, you know pipe dimensions, receiver locations, um, liquid lines coming out of receivers, all that sort of thing. Um, but so long as you follow, uh, let's say, common sense, um, then you shouldn't have any issues. Mm. Um, I did see a, a pipe coming out of a receiver and going over a doorway uh, and then back down again, which was a little strange. Um, but yeah, I think so long as you follow convention, then you shouldn't have any issues. Mm. Okay, thanks. Thank you for listening in on this podcast. You'll meet Jörg Saar and John Broughton in the coming episodes of Tour de Cooling. Please allow me to repeat what I just mentioned in the start, that you can ask questions and send comments by sending them to chillingwithjens in one word at danfoss.com or you can post your question in the social medias where you find Danfoss typically LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. Thank you.